0: This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, sports fans. Welcome back to another great show at The Rounds Table. Today, we have a brand new guest at the table, and we're really excited to have him. Not only because he is he a practicing general internist, but also because he practices in the hometown of my medical school, that's Kingston, Ontario, Dr. Andrew Smagas, welcome onto the show. We're really happy to have you here. Okay.
1: Thanks very much. I am ecstatic to, uh, to be here.
0: And we are ecstatic to have you here. So let's get right down
1: to it. Why don't you introduce the article that you chose for this week? Yeah, so the, the article I, I chose for this week is uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine on the subject of resident duty hours. And it is entitled, Education Outcomes in a Duty Hour Flexibility Trial in Internal Medicine. And that's coming to us from Desai, at all the I compare research group.
0: Well, I compare to a resident as I am still a resident, so I'm really interested to see what this training study has to tell us about duty hours, uh, which are something that are a little bit more unique to the US, but
1: tell us, Andrew, what is the bottom line for this trial? Yeah, so in this this trial, so this cluster randomized trial of approximately 60 internal medicine residency programs in the United States found that there were no differences in the amount of time interns spent in direct patient care or in educational exercises in programs with flexible duty hours compared to programs with standard duty hours. However, uh, interns in the flexible programs reported more dissatisfaction with their training, while program directors in the flexible programs were more likely to be satisfied with the education provided. I think ultimately this study it does add to the literature regarding the experience of trainees within the current training environment, but uh, as with uh, other studies, many important questions do remain. I
0: completely agree. And one of the questions that came up in my mind, or one of the observations I should say in preparing for this episode, was, I actually tweeted about it today, the tension that I have recognized in this trial between residents and their educators around clinical duties and patient care. And so I'll be interested to to get into that a little bit further. But from your perspective, Andrew, why did you choose this article? Can you help frame it in the context of your interest in patient safety
1: and quality and, and education? absolutely so to be honest you know discussions of duty hours are so ubiquitous these days that you know it's it's almost silly to to try to explain why why the issue is important but i will nonetheless uh, uh obviously issues with regarding duty hours are 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 one very important aspect of the overall question of how to provide care for patients within academic health sciences center Obviously, as a topic, this is incredibly interesting and has uh, incredible uh, implications for patient safety. Um, Resident duty hours factor prominently in discussions regarding the delivery of high quality care to patients, providing an appropriate training setting, and maintaining the health and wellness of people in postgraduate training programs. So that's with regard to the topic, now this particular study is important because it's by far the largest to examine questions surrounding duty hours in in internal medicine training programs. So, so it really does address uh, what to this point has been a gap in the, uh, in the literature. Okay. Well, definitely
0: an interesting and important uh, question, I think, and this is obviously a very large trial. So tell us, Andrew, how did they go about answering this question in the design of their study? Okay.
1: So, so the design of the study, this was a, a cluster randomized trial. Of academic internal medicine uh, postgraduate programs throughout the essentially all of the United States uh, with the exception of New York uh, and it took place from July 1st 2015 to the end of the academic year on June 30th 2016 just of note programs volunteered to be involved in uh, in this trial and though while what was uh, while the study was randomized at the the level of the internal medicine programs uh the actual outcomes were essentially measured in the trainees uh, within, those, within those programs and primarily the interns within within the programs. To a lesser degree, uh outcomes were assessed in uh in the program directors. Um, that the programs had to volunteer to get into the into the trial. Beyond that, they weren't too picky with their inclusion criteria, right? It essentially was just a willingness to be randomized. And the exclusion criteria really was just set up to exclude smaller uh, programs or those with a relatively high burden of uh, patients to to, to residents.
0: All right, well, that makes sense. I don't know why New York decided not to participate, but uh, let's move on to actually what the intervention was or what the comparison
1: was between the randomization arms. So the specific question that they were seeking to answer was essentially what are the educational effects on internal medicine residents of flexible duty hour regulations versus the current standard ACGME duty hour uh, regulations.
0: So more to come on this trial, but lots to report today. But tell us, Andrew, how do they define the two arms, the flexible duty hours versus standard duty hours? Can you explain that a little bit more for us? So the
1: two study arms did have a few things in common. So in both groups, the maximum number of hours per week was 80. In both groups, residents could do a maximum of one and in three in-house call, and in both groups, residents were required to have one each seven days off. Okay, so that was common between the two groups. For the standard duty hour group, the requirements there were 16-hour shift maximums for interns in our country, as well as for residents, or PGY2s and above, uh, their shift maximums were 24 hours with 4 hours essentially for for handover. In addition to that, the standard duty hour programs had uh, a requirement for a minimum amount of time between work shifts which differed depending on the year of experience. Contrast that with the flexible duty hour group. In that group there were no maximums On shift length and there was no requirement for a minimum amount of time off between shifts. So essentially the the difference uh, between the two groups boils down to maximum shift lengths and minimum amounts of time off between shifts in the standard duty hour uh, group and no regulations on those parameters whatsoever in the flexible duty hour group.
0: All right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. It sounds to me like this is sort of the new way of doing things versus what some might call the good old days of being a doctor on call. So tell me, Andrew, how did they measure the outcomes? There's a lot of different moving parts to this and people that they've interviewed and asked questions about, but break it down for us, if you can, uh, into their sort of main outcome measures.
1: Yeah, this does get a bit messy. Uh, I think the, the, the best way I can summarize it is to say that there are four main outcome measures that uh, these authors used. Number one, they looked at the time interns spent in direct patient care. That was assessed by time motion observations. Uh, Of note, they only assessed that in six out of the 60 programs, Okay, so it was a slightly more limited assessment. Number two, they assessed the time that interns spent in educational endeavors, again assessed by time motion observation and only in six programs. Number three, they assessed the satisfaction with the overall educational experience. That was done both in the trainees and in the program directors. And that was done using survey data both from the ACGME as well as this survey that the authors had adapted and administered on their own. And then finally, number four, the assessed medical knowledge, which they did uh, using results from the ACP uh, in training examinations.
0: So we're looking at the domains of patient contact and time, a measure of satisfaction, and then effect on sort of your medical expertise uh, and where this might be affected. Okay, well,
1: I'm excited. So tell me, what did they actually find? So what they, what they found, so drum roll please. So with respect to each outcome, Thank you. Uh, The time interns (laughs) spent in direct patient care, there was no significant difference between the two groups. It was about 13% of the time for the interns in the flexible group and 12% of the time for interns in the standard group. My God, I shudder to
0: think that we spend not even a quarter of our day with patients in direct patient contact. Let's, uh, Let's hope it wasn't time on Facebook and Instagram, but all right. What about the time in educational endeavors? Maybe they were off learning.
1: You would hope so, but that was only 7% of the time in both groups. So again, no significant difference between the the two groups. Hmm. All
0: right. And how about the trainees? How satisfied were they with their overall educational experience?
1: Well, so this, again, a little bit messy to present. So, so the authors assessed this in two ways. So one, they said the primary way that we're going, going to assess this outcome is to look at a survey question from the ACGME survey. Responses to uh, the question begin, quote, major assignments provide an appropriate balance between education and other clinical demands, end quote. And on that, there was no significant difference between uh, the groups in responses to that question. However, on the survey administered by the study authors, trainees in the flexible group, pardon me, I'll stress that, in the flexible group were much more likely to report dissatisfaction with numerous aspects of their training. For example, the overall quality of their education, their overall personal well being and the effect of training on their personal lives. And those and other differences are outlined uh, in table four of the study.
0: Okay, and on the other side of the pendulum, you have our educators or the program directors in this study, and what do they think of the educational experience between the two programs?
1: They were comparatively ecstatic on the, uh, the survey that the authors, uh, authors provided them. So they were much more likely, those program directors in the flexible groups, to report satisfaction with uh, things such as you know, the ownership that, that residents demonstrated of their patients, time that was available for teaching within their, within their program as well as the ability of staff to provide feedback. So on that author survey they, they, had, they found positive results there and those can be found at Table 7. Now just to bring it back to the ACGME survey which the authors did specify was their primary outcome so to speak in addressing this question. Uh, On that survey, uh, the question of whether or not residents' clinical workload exceeds their capacity to do their work, there actually was no significant differences in the responses of uh, program directors between the two groups on on that question. So on the ACGME, there weren't any differences between the the groups, but in the authors' own survey, uh, quite quite striking differences. Arose both between the groups and between the the trainees and the program directors.
0: Some part of me wonders how much of that is due to a question that is maybe inadequately designed to answer the question or to gather the information that they want and how much of it is a bias in an unblinded situation where residents know what program they're in and program directors know what program
1: they're overseeing. And then I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you know, so, some of that I think is is going to come up when we talk about the limitations. But one thing that uh, I'll just say now, I, I would say you know, medical educators probably recognize survey responses as pretty low-hanging fruits, especially when you're looking at satisfaction outcomes. You know, if, if, if you're going to find differences, one easy place to look is on a survey that assesses satisfaction.
0: All right, let's get to maybe some would argue the most important aspect of medical training is the expertise that... Uh, the residents are gaining from different program
1: strategies. And what what happens here, Andrew? So the scores from the flexible group met criteria for non-inferiority compared to the standard group, but only after a correction for the previous year's scores. What were the differences before
0: they applied their statistical wizardry?
1: Well, prior to that, the criteria for non-inferiority was was not met, so it looked like the scores probably were a little bit lower in the in the flexible group.
0: So those are interesting results, I would say overall, some surprising, some not. Um, but tell us, Andrew, what's your take on this trial as far as any of the limitations or important observations you wanted to make overall? so the the
1: main thing that hit me when i read this paper was it really made me think of a pretty famous uh, medical education paper from around 2000 titled effectiveness of problem based learning curricula learning theory and paper darts which included the classic line curriculum level interventions are doomed to fail and they explain precisely some of the points you've already hit on they can't be blinded the outcomes are subject to numerous confounders And the intervention, whatever it is, generally gets implemented in non-uniform ways across sites. Now, having said that, one aspect of this study that really should prompt discussion are those burnout scores. Um, As I mentioned, those scores are disturbingly high. And I think that alone suggests that we really need to think seriously about the the human toll uh, that's associated not only with our duty hour practices, but just in general with training and practicing in internal medicine um, these days.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's an absolutely uh, very important point And very interesting that you picked that up out of, uh, out of the article. As you said, it wasn't highlighted. Certainly, I've, uh, I've gone through burnout and multiple levels of burnout in my training. Um, and now as I transition to inventive practice, and I'm, I've become obsessed with sort of monitoring myself for it and recognizing the signs, because it is quite scary. And when I was in the depths of the worst uh, burnout I had in my second year, I didn't even realize it until after the fact. Uh, that that was you know that was burnout that's what they talk about so um, I think that's a really important point so this has been a great discussion kind of take it home for it, uh, for us Andrew distill it down into a couple of points what, what are you hoping listeners take away from the duty hours trial and the I Compare
1: group so I, w- I would say probably three things so one this study found no differences in the amount of time that interns spent on patient care or educational activities regardless of the uh, duty hour structure Two, it does seem that there's a little bit more dissatisfaction amongst trainees in flexible duty hour programs. And number three, we're going to have to be very careful with regards to issues of physician wellness and burnout in the upcoming years.
0: Okay, a chilling take on an important article, I think. Thank you for that, Andrew. Let's move on to the article that I chose for this week. Similar vein to this week on the theme of patient safety and quality of care overall, but in a different realm, so to speak. So I chose to cover an article that looked at the years of experience that a hospitalist physician has and its potential impact or association with patient mortality. This was by Dr. James Goodwin and his group, and they published this in JAMA Internal Medicine online in December of 2017.
1: Yeah, and I must say I, I read this with with interest, being uh, about eight years into into practice now, and I want to know if my prime is behind me, or uh, or if better times uh, better times lie ahead.
0: <laughs> well, let's find out. I'll tell you the bottom line here for this, Andrew. This was a retrospective administrative data study of just over twenty one thousand hospitalists in the United States who were caring for Medicare patients, and ultimately it found that. If you were a patient that was cared for by a hospitalist in their first year of practice, kind of like myself, they had experienced higher mortality with approximately a 10% difference in odds between physicians in their very first year and those in their second year of independent practice. And that was whether you looked at it uh, in the framework of within 30 days of uh, hospitalization or during the hospitalization period uh, in and of itself. And the implications of this study could be multiple, um, but I think ultimately what my takeaway was that we need to examine why this association exists so that we can develop uh, additional supports for first-year hospitalists to try to mitigate this uh, mortality uh, uh, risk that they found associated with first-year practicing physicians.
1: Karen, if you can just tell us, you know, what, what was it about this article that, uh, that piqued your interest?
0: Well, I think uh, similar to your self-reflective exercise uh, being sort of in the early entering mid-career uh, phase, I am a fresh hospitalist, so to speak. I'm in the very first year of independent practice. I'm actually not even quite because I'm just finishing my fellowship but allowed to locum now independently. So, if there's one thing that I've definitely learned in the five years of training that I've gone through, mainly from the mentors who have taught me, is that
1: it experience counts for a lot in this business of medicine. Mm-hmm. On on that note, why don't you just uh, can you take us through the design of uh, the design of study and, and how they uh, how they set out investigating this issue? So this wasn't a cluster randomized trial of 60
0: training programs across the United States. It was a retrospective administrative data study, um, and they used a, a 5% ran, random sample of Medicare claims data in the U.S., so Medicare patients typically older, sometimes lower socioeconomic status um, in the United States. It's one of the health insurance plans, and this was conducted between 2003 and 2014. Now, the like your study, the the Patients were not the direct uh, component of interest as far as the participants in this study. In fact, they were more interested in the internists themselves and the patients who the internists look after. And so they approached this problem in two ways. So first, they determined the experience level of each hospitalist in the study in the year 2013 and 2014. And they constructed what they called a longitudinal cohort of three groups of hospitalists Uh, based on whether it was their first, second, or third year of training. And then they followed those three groups of physicians forward in time for four years to sort of see how things changed within a single physician over time. Um, And second, they then took um, all physicians looking after these patients under Medicare between the years of 2011 and 2014, and to determine their level of practice as far as their years of experience, they looked backwards five years and figured out how many years experience they had from that point in time uh, going backwards. Uh, so kind of a two, two different ways to start. You start with the, with the physicians in their first year and you follow them forward and you compare them to physicians in their second and third year. Or you look at a whole group of physicians at one point in time and you look back five years and see where they are in their training, uh, sorry, where they are in their experience uh, career. Um, and those are the two different ways they did that. Uh, the last thing I would say was uh, to identify then the patients that they're looking after. They looked at all acute hospitalizations that lasted at least three days of length and stay. And they did that for any patient uh, who was uh, an adult over the age of 66 years or older. And uh, they wanted the majority of the charges, the billings for that patient during their hospitalization to come from one internist, uh, one hospitalist, I should say. And those were a generalist hospitalist physician in this study. So those could be a general internist, a family physician, a
1: general practitioner, or a geriatrician. Um, Okay. And with that, uh, can you tell us about the um, exposures in uh, in this study the investigators looked at? So, the investigators really wanted to get at the
0: underlying question, does the mortality of patients uh, vary by the amount of prior experience of the hospitalists who are looking after them during a hospital episode? And so, to get at that question, what they, they took the physicians as I described above and figured out how many years of experience they had in a couple different ways, and they ultimately compared physicians in their first year of practice to physicians who had been practicing for more than one year um, because they, they, what they initially found was that there was no real difference if you were in your second, third, or fourth year uh, as far as your overall risk of mortality as a patient being looked after by those docs. Um, but really, it was that first year was the critical time, and after that, you know, you got your feet wet and you were comfortable. So the main exposure was to say physicians in their first year compared to physicians who've been practicing for longer than one year.
1: Okay, and the, within that, the primary outcome in this, uh, in this study? So they kept it
0: really simple, which is kind of nice. Um, they really only looked at two things. So the primary outcome was to measure the 30-day post-hospital admission mortality of the patients of those hospitalists. And, of course, they adjusted that for a bunch of important patient-level characteristics that might influence somebody's risk of dying. For example, their socioeconomic status, their underlying medical condition, these types of things. And they also uh, accounted for what we call hospital-level factors. So with a certain hospital might be poorer or better quality than the hospital down the road. And that might be because the hospital is bigger or smaller, is a profit hospital or a non-profit hospital, and is or is not affiliated with a medical school. So they accounted for all those different hospital-level factors as well to try to get at really the underlying question of the physician and the physician characteristics of their training that influence the overall risk. Um, and we would call that, uh, in, a, in a statistical standpoint, nesting or clustering. Uh, so patients are nested within a physician who looks after them and they are clustered and nested within a hospital in which they practice and are admitted. So the secondary outcome uh, which was just essentially a variation of the first one, was to look at overall hospital mortality for the for the stay of a patient as opposed to just the 30-day mortality estimates uh, uh, for those patients.
1: Okay, and now we get to the good stuff. All right, can you tell us the results and the main findings? Absolutely, the good stuff of the study, not the good stuff of the
0: show. We'll get to that at the end, as you, uh, my listeners like to know. So um, the results were as follows, Andrew. Um, if you, the, the, the two different ways that they looked at physicians, so the cross-sectional cohort where they dropped themselves in and looked back five years, that we had just over 21,000 hospitalists in that group. Um, but the group that they called a longitudinal cohort where they picked out first, second, third year uh, physicians and followed them forward, that was just over 3,800 physicians. Ultimately, though, no matter what way you looked at it, between the years of hospitalist years of experience, The patients uh, were relatively well-balanced between the two groups, Um, although there was a finding that more experienced hospitalists worked in smaller, non-academic hospitals. And I think that might be an important point that explains potentially why we might find some of the findings we do in this study, which which I'll explain a bit more in detail later, but just park that thought for now. Overall, your typical patient in this study was a medically complex uh, 80-year-old woman who was admitted to the medical ward. Her average length of stay was about five or six days, and she previously was living in the community, cared for in urban hospitals that are at least 200 beds in size and not affiliated with the medical school. So, what we might call a community hospital. And I would ask you, Andrew, does that sound like a familiar patient or situation that you might find yourself in, albeit I know now you practice at Queens, but just in general from a medical ward, medical patient standpoint? Yeah, I would say
1: that that description of a patient would would fall pretty much right in the middle of a of a strike of the strike zone for any uh, any general internist.
0: I love the sports reference. Unintentional that I started the show with a sports uh, introduction. All right, so I'll tell you a little bit about what the main findings were here. So the primary outcome, the observed thirty day post admission mortality, was ten and a half percent for patients who were looked after by first year hospitalists, and just about nine point nine percent for patients uh, looked after by hospitalists in their second or third or fourth year. So overall, if you compare the mortality odds uh, between uh, patients uh, looked after by second year hospitalists compared to first year hospitalists, you had a 0.9 odds ratio or a 10% lower odds of uh, dying when looked after by a second year compared to a first year hospitalist.
1: Yeah, so, so th- as I said uh, before, very, very interesting uh, results um also in some ways perhaps a, a little bit uncomfortable that uh that depending on on the experience patient outcomes might differ just based on whom they whom they ended up uh end up admitted under uh, given that how much do you think we should believe these results
0: yeah you know whenever we come to these um particularly administrative observational study designs we always 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 are concerned about Unmeasured confounders, unmeasured factors uh, that could explain the, the association that we're seeing. I think overall that, um, you know, I would take these findings to be uh, somewhat true in the sense that I believe them. I think that there probably is uh, an association with worse patient outcomes the, the greener you are as a physician, so to speak. Um, but the question as to why that might be. Uh, is where it gets interesting and is not answered by this study. So let me try to bring this home for you, Andrew. What I want, what I'm hoping our listeners take away from this this study. Um, overall, this study demonstrates that older patients who are cared for by a newly minted hospitalist are, in fact, at increased odds of dying compared to those with two or year or more years of experience. And if you translate that into a meaningful number for people, it would be about one death per 100 admissions when cared for by a hospitalist in their first year of independent practice. And if you think about just how many admissions there are in the United States or Canada in any given year, that's a pretty concerning number. But, as I mentioned, I think what we really need to understand is why this association exists, and that's probably better answered using a more prospective approach where we can account for all of these things that we just talked about. Nevertheless, uh, it, it, it... makes me shudder a little as I go out and
1: practice on my own as a first-year uh, hospitalist. Well, well just to make you shudder a little bit more uh, if I can propose a hypothetical to you uh, let's say that you're not a physician but now you're uh, heaven forbid you're, you're a patient who happens to be admitted to hospital and and you learn that you're uh, admitted under a hospitalist in their first year of practice how well are you gonna sleep that night?
0: You're admitted under Dr. Quinn's uh, care, and you think, should I request a different physician? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and hopefully it's not under the care of Dr. Quinn, I would say, in this, uh, in this situation. Well, Andrew, uh, great discussion today. As uh, always, it's my favorite part of the show. It's time for the good stuff uh, segment, where we are talking about
1: what we are reading about. Andrew, what has caught your attention this week? I, I did a little bit of a deep dive into the topic of artificial intelligence in, uh, in medicine and uh, wanted to, to try to get up to speed on that. And, and I encountered a, a fairly interesting uh, story out of New Zealand on, uh, on this topic of uh, an artificial intelligence um, entity, uh, which was being used to, uh, uh, by physicians to create doctor's notes, to interpret, uh, to interpret ECGs. Uh, and interpret other other tests, and it really seemed to be uh, gaining steam in New Zealand. So, just to get on with the the story, this reporter sort of looked into this and, and was ended up being befuddled by by what he saw. He he asked about this machine, and uh, of, of the creators, he asked, "Well, how do you how do you interact with it?" Uh, the response was email. <laughs> you email? you <laughs> sent it an email. He gets. <laughs> a an email that takes 20 minutes to respond uh and f- is loaded with spelling mistakes from 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 the so artificial, artificial reporter, intelligence machine from the artificial intelligence uh uh entity um uh, uh <laughs> so anyhow the the it it actually ended up being like a two part news investigation on, on this website that is actually quite funny to, to read. The, um, the, the reporter seems to come to the conclusion that this uh, uh, artificial intelligence was neither artificial <laughs> nor intelligent, and it was just some individual uh, behind a computer uh, duping these uh, positions. Yeah. Uh, even more interesting, uh, it went beyond medicine it, into law. Uh, they had AI to help lawyers and just take one guess at the name that they gave to that machine. I don't know. Guilty Incorporated. You're so close.
0: They, call, <laughs> they literally called it Hustle. Hustle. <laughs> ah, they're having a laugh. They're having a laugh. Well, I, I kind of like your story a lot better than mine, but mine was a reading in a news story actually in JAMA this week that talked about innovations in the diagnosis of HIV. So currently, we we test for HIV with a blood sample, looking for serum antibodies of the uh, of the virus. And traditionally, they've been trying to improve this and using saliva uh, tests uh, based assays. However, uh, there was a recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists in a uh, company that's developed a new method of testing oral um, samples for HIV that was 1, 000, somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 times more sensitive than the traditional blood-based assays that we use to detect HIV antibodies. Um, and the way it does it is kind of neat that, basically, uh, it takes engineered HIV antigens in the lab, it tags them with DNA molecules, and then um, uh, the HIV antibodies in the serum or sorry, in the saliva of somebody with HIV bind to those antigen DNA molecules, and then they amplify that up with uh, polymerase chain reaction to be able to detect the presence of HIV. So it's kind of a backwards uh, approach to uh, detecting the antigen, but I thought it was pretty neat. And if, you know, if, this, if this is uh, true, it could really change the way that we test for HIV in, uh, in individuals, especially individuals early in the course of their infection where uh, viral loads and antibodies might be lower and, and less uh, sensitive to our traditional uh, means of testing. Well, Andrew, this was definitely a fantastic uh, introduction uh, for me to have you on the show. I hope you enjoyed yourself. And certainly we here at the Roundtable hopes you join us uh, again in the future for lots of discussion around medical literature, especially as it pertains to patient safety and quality.
1: I had an absolute blast and I will be uh, trying to hone my podcast skills until the next time. But thank you very much for, for having me.
0: Fantastic. Until then. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcias Flores, communications director Anthony Maher, segment developer Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us?